Hey, good morning, everybody. So I was a child of uh, the 1980s, and there was a TV show that was formative for me. It shaped me, um, and it ran for 98 episodes during the 19, 1983 to 1987. And I want to describe it, and we'll see if you can guess which TV show I'm talking about as I describe it. Um, so there was a team of people, former Special Forces people, who had been, oh, wow, that was very quick, <laughs> very quick. Uh, the, the word team, I guess, might have given it away. Um, so this is very generational. Some of you are not going to relate to this TV show. But for me, there was this show that I loved, A-Team, right? There was this team of former Special Forces soldiers uh, wrongly you know, accused of a crime that they didn't commit, and they were on the run. But while they were on the run, they were, they were helping people, and they were rescuing people from be, who were kidnapped. They were like breaking up drug rings and you know, all of this stuff. And they had this team of people who everyone had a specialty on the team. Right, Hannibal's the leader of the team. There's Face Man, who was all about disguises and different things like that. Mad Murdoch was the pilot. He would get them in and out of their different situations. But the problem was B.A. Baracus uh, did not like flying. And so he'd have to be knocked out through elaborate means, you know, different times to get him on the helicopter so that they could go from mission uh, to mission. But the, the format was very simple of the show, right? They would go and they'd have to... Um, solve some mystery or rescue someone that was in need of rescue, and they would go through these elaborate scenarios, right? They'd figure out this plan, you know, plot it all out. Here's the plan. At some point, a school bus would be covered in armor, you know, that sort of thing during the episode, and there would be um, the, 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 the kind of every episode would end with this huge action sequence, Right, with lots of explosions and bullets flying, and no one ever got killed in the show. It was like the, you know, the people, there would be people flying in explosions, but no one ever died. It was always, it was fine. Um, and, but at the end of the episode, right, they'd be all kind of gathered together in a room or in their amazing van that they drove around in, and inevitably Hannibal had a catchphrase, right? So if you remember the show, some of you in this room, you know, many of you too young to, to know this show. But uh, Hannibal would take a giant cigar and he would stick it in his mouth and he'd say what? I love it. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> I love it when a plan comes together. I bring this up just because I like to relive my childhood a little bit, but also because this is what we are seeing happen in the Joseph story. We started a series last week called God Meant It for Good. And Joseph's story starts out with these incredibly painful moments, these things that he goes through that are just brutal. And God, though, through this painful situation, through the things that Joseph did not cause, you know, things that were done to Joseph by people who meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God is taking these things happening in Joseph's life, and he is outmaneuvering the plans of his brothers that were meant to harm him, and God ends up flipping these things around and using them to bring about something good. And I can just imagine God, not with a cigar, but saying, I love it when a plan comes together, right? He, at the end of the story, when Joseph is with his brothers and he says these words, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, to save a lot of lives. Um, this plan, at some point, Joseph gets to see how God uses the painful things that he walks through as a part of his plan. And he brings it all together. But we're still at the beginning, and Joseph doesn't know where this story is going. All he knows is that he's experienced 
probably the most painful thing that he's ever experienced in his life or will ever experience, which is what we covered last Sunday. So last Sunday we were in Genesis 37. This Sunday we're going to be in Genesis chapter 39, so you can go ahead and prepare for that. Open Bibles or turn them on, whatever the case may be, and the text will also be on the screen behind me. We're going to go through the entire chapter of Genesis chapter 39 as we continue Joseph's story. But last week we talked about, as we began in Genesis 37, Joseph's situation. Joseph is the favorite son of his father, and the father has made it absolutely clear that he is the favorite by giving him a coat of many colors for him to wear that would define him as the favorite son, and he would wear that around his brothers. And there was this intense jealousy, but not just jealousy, not just envy, hatred that grew in this family. Joseph ends up going to check on his brothers in this isolated place where they're out with the flocks. And he goes out to see his brothers and his brothers spot him because of probably wearing his coat of many colors um, and walking towards them. And they say, Joseph, here comes Joseph, that dreamer. Let's kill him. We're in this isolated place. Anything could happen. And we could just tell dad that a wild animal killed Joseph. Well, the brothers debate this for a little bit and they say, well, no, let's not kill him, but let's put him in this pit in the ground. They put him in this pit in the ground. Um, later, we find out he's calling out for help from this pit. Later, the, they decide to, the, to sell him into slavery. Let's not kill him. We don't get anything out of that. And he is our brother, they say. Let, let's sell him into slavery to these passing merchants that are coming by. And so they do that. The merchants you know, give him 20, they give them 20 pieces of silver. They take this coat of many colors off of him, and they tear it a little bit and kill a goat and put blood on it, and they bring it back to their father. And the hatred for Joseph has, has grown so much into their hearts that they don't even care that their, their, their father is going to be crushed and destroyed by what he thinks happened, which is that his son was killed by a wild animal. Well, that's where we kind of left off last week. We, Joseph is sold into slavery. He's taken all the way to Egypt. He ends up in the house of Potiphar, um, which I've been debating in my head how I'm going to pronounce that. I'm going to have to say it a whole bunch this morning. Potiphar is what I, Potiphar is easier for me. I'm going to say Potiphar, not Potiphar, even though that might be more correct. Um, well, so here's Joseph's story, right? Once you're sold into slavery, as bad as that is, right, it can't get any worse, right? I mean, we can take comfort in that, that as bad as it got for Joseph, it's not going to get worse than that, right? Oh, you, if you know the story, you know that it actually does, unfortunately, get worse Joseph. We're going to read Genesis 39 right through the whole chapter, and then we'll talk about what we see here in this story and what we can learn about some of these big questions that we struggle with in life. Where, where is God when we're going through difficult situations? Where is God when we're experiencing pain and suffering? Can God do anything with that? Why doesn't God stop our pain and suffering? We're going to look at this story and I hope take some lessons away that will help us as we wrestle with these big questions that we all face at some point in our life. So let's read Genesis 39 and we'll start at verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. 
From that time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment beside her, by her, until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were there in the the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. I was talking about last week this coincidence here about how Joseph ended up in in Potiphar's house, which put him in this influential place. And, And we talked about last week, it's not coincidence, right? It's God's Providence. God is guiding this story and guiding these events and moving pieces into place for what he is going to do to provide for Joseph's family and all the other people who would survive these years of famine because Joseph was in the right place at the right time. It's not coincidence, it's God's providence. Joseph ends up in this particular place where he's in this influential, he's interacting with someone who's very influential. Potiphar's the, the Captain of the guard, he's the the leader of all the Egyptian military. He was a very powerful person, and quickly Potiphar noticed that everything that Joseph touched turned to gold. He had the Midas touch, right? He was gifted in a way that everything that he had uh, impact on, he made a difference. Things got better when he was around. It was that that song would play when he walked into the room, all I do is win, 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 no matter what, you know? He's just, God is with him. And he is making an impact in a positive way in Potiphar's life, taking care of his fields and his home and all of this stuff. And Potiphar notices this about him. God is with you and you are very effective at what you do. And so he goes from being a slave and you you can imagine that he probably worked his way up. He's still a slave, but now he has this influence and control and power in, in this influential place. 
And the scripture makes this point to tell us that Joseph is very handsome, which is just an interesting note, right? I'm learning, uh, I, I was messing around with chat GPT, you know, AI and things like that, and we're hearing a lot about it, um, AI. But I, I signed up for a premium membership to chat GPT for a little while to see what, um, to just kind of learn, learn for it, like learn, learn how to use it. And one of the things you can do with the premium membership of ChatGPT is you can generate images. And that's actually how the background for the logo for the series was designed. And it's supposed to be like a coat of many colors, sort of, you know, like a tapestry. And ChatGPT designed that for me. But one of the things I was doing was I just messing around with it. I said, I typed the, the, the prompt. Here's the prompt. A hyper-realistic image of Joseph in his coat of many colors, right? So that's what I typed. And then this is the picture that I got. So I want to show you this picture. Look at this picture. I, let's leave that up there for a minute. And then I typed, I said, younger and less like a supermodel. That was the next thing I typed. But I'm like, what on earth? Like his haircut and like the, like how do you get stubble like that in ancient, the ancient world, you know? But I'm like, he looks like a supermodel here, right? And, and, but oddly enough, this seems appropriate, right? Because we're told scripture tells us he's very handsome, right? Let's get that rid of that picture now, okay. Um, Potiphar's wife notices him, and she's drawn to him, and she begins to make these appeals to him for, for him to commit this sin with her. He's like, I, I, she, she's like, lie with me, you know? She's trying to seduce him. And Joseph has to deal with this in a persistent way. It's not just one time she extends this invitation, but day after day after day, Scripture is telling us that he's facing this temptation. And I want you to think about what Joseph must have been feeling, what Joseph was going through during this time. Joseph is far from home. Joseph is isolated. Joseph might feel like, hey, what does it matter what kind of choices I make morally in this situation? Like, my life has been so bad. I, this could be, you know, whatever. This may, the, we don't know exactly what his thought process was, but we're told how he responds which is in spite of the persistent temptation, he persistently responds as a man of character. And he said, this would be wicked for me to sin against God and to sin against my master by committing this act. And so he just refuses over and over again. And he shows himself to be a person of character, that even when his character is tested, and we all have these moments where like, our character is tested, you know, that, that when, you, when, you're, when you're tempted in a way that, like, it would be just so much easier to give in to this temptation, right? You're tired, you're hungry, like, there might be a cost associated with you standing strong. You might have a workplace situation where, like, all of the, your coworkers want you to fudge the numbers on something or be dishonest about some report or how things played out, and you realize you have a cost now associated with doing the right thing. This is when our character is tested. This is when it is challenged. Joseph stands strong. And we're told that what he does in this moment where like she, Potiphar's wife has set a trap for him, essentially. Everyone's gone. He's going there to do his work. She grabs onto him. She knows that no one is around. And she is trying to you know, make this happen, right? He, he, in this moment, he does something interesting, which is he just runs. He's like, no. And I'm leaving. And he runs and get, gets out of there as fast as he can. When we think about temptation sometimes, and in particular sexual temptation, 
but really any kind of temptation, sometimes we might think that maturity means being able to be in a tempting environment and just to stand strong in that tempting environment. But what Joseph does is what is one of the most effective tools with dealing with temptation is he runs. He gets out of there. Later, the Apostle Paul will write in his letter to uh, Timothy, who's a pastor, a young man, he tells him to flee youthful temptation. Maturity is not necessarily remaining in a tempting situation and standing strong. It is, maturity is getting away from there. Don't put yourself in that situation where you will be tempted, right? He He says, flee youthful temptation. Joseph does that exact thing. He does the right thing in a tempting situation and flees from the temptation. And it goes horribly wrong for him, even though he did the right thing. And, and I was thinking about this, I, this part of the story, and it's such a rough deal, right? It's, it's a lose-lose situation, right? Joseph could, could give in to the temptation, and then he sacrifices his morality and his character and what he knows God is calling him to live as and the man God wants him to be. And he's, he, if, he, if he gives in to the temptation, he loses. He sacrifices all of that. Sins against God, sins against Potiphar. But it's also a loose situation by, by saying no to temptation. He finds himself in prison, right? He's angered this very powerful woman, and it just seems so unfair. Like, why would God allow Joseph to go through this, right? We expect when we make the wrong choice, like, you're not shocked when things go poorly for you, right? If you just are are totally um, disobeying God and you don't care what God thinks and you just are making the wrong choice and then things go bad for you, it's not like a giant surprise, right? We kind of understand, like, consequences and, and things like that. Although it doesn't always happen like that, right? Um, in, I think it's Psalm 37, the psalmist is writing about these people who just are, are going against God and things seem like it's working out for them. And sometimes it does seem like it works out for people that make the wrong choice. But we're not surprised when it, it bites you, right? You do the wrong thing and, and you face some kind of consequences for that. But we really have a hard time when you do the right thing and it goes poorly, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem like that's how it should go. And in fact, there's a whole, there's a whole teaching, right, that, this, that is, has caught hold in some Christian circles that if you do the right thing and if you have enough faith, you will face no trouble in your life. Like things will go great for you. Um, and if they're not going great for you, just dial up the faith a little more. Like if you had more faith, then things would go better for you. And maybe the fact that things aren't going well for you is because you just don't have enough faith. Anyone heard something similar to that at some point? Yeah. I have a real problem with that one, by the way. Uh, like, I, I think, here, here's, here's the deal. Let's acknowledge the little bit of truth in that. In general, when you do the right thing, things go well. There is sort of a life principle for that. The book of Proverbs includes a lot of teaching along those lines. Like, blessed is the person who walks with wisdom and, and fears the Lord and all these things. And there's this general principle where that is true, but it doesn't always work out that way. We call the kind of shorthand version of this teaching, we call it the prosperity gospel. That if you will do the right thing and if you will have enough faith, you will face no trouble in your life, you will always face prosperity and all of these things. And the major problem with this teaching is it's not in the Bible. It's not biblical. You don't all, you're not guaranteed. God is not a slot machine 
or got a vending machine where you put the coins in and you get exactly what you're expecting. I guess a slot machine is not a good example. I meant more of a vending machine. <laughs> the vending machine where you put the coins in or the dollar bills in or whatever and you order what you want and you get exactly that thing. God is doing things in this world that are bigger than we can sometimes wrap our minds around. And in Joseph's story, he does the right thing and it goes bad for him. I, I was... My frustrations with this prosperity gospel kind of teaching is, is I, it's, it's so popular and, it, and it's, it's popular in places where people are going through extreme pain, like in, the, in Africa, for example, right? People are going through, they're in deep poverty and this teaching is like grabbed on there. There's so many teachers promoting this kind of way of thinking about things because people are desperate. And so they're, 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 they want this to be true and it's like, and then I imagine a prosperity gospel teacher like walking into Paul's prison cell in their nice suit and trying to explain to Paul that if you just had more faith, you wouldn't be in these chains, Paul. You just got to have more faith, you know, claim it and all of this kinds of things. And I, I hope you understand. I hope we're on the same page about how that doesn't always work in that same way. And I'm saying I hope that because many, many years ago at this church when we were in our old building, I said something similar to the things I've just said and I was read the riot act by somebody after the service that came up to me that was very upset about uh, what I was saying about that kind of teaching. So anyway, maybe it'll happen this morning. We'll see. <laughs> the, the truth is we can't opt out of pain and suffering. We all face losses. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Your response when trouble comes your way is so crucial. Like what you do with that. We don't get to opt out of it. That's, that's the next life. That's not this life. But when trouble comes, we need to, we need to remember a few things when we're suffering. And, and I want to help us with this and kind of think about these ideas, about these, these questions. Why does God allow suffering? Where is God when you're going through suffering? Why doesn't God intervene when we're suffering? Let's think about this a little bit together this morning. One of the things we need to do is, what, where, what are you going to do with all those big questions? When you go through something painful enough, at some point, you begin to ask those questions. Like, where is God in this? And many people choose painful times to run from God. They go, if this is what God has for me, God doesn't seem very caring right now. And so maybe I'm not interested in God, or maybe I don't even believe in God. And many other people will do the exact opposite, and they draw near to God, and they get the help that they need in that moment when they're experiencing that kind of suffering. And so where do we go? What is our instinct when trouble comes our way? If you were talking to Joseph after he's gone through, he ends up in, in, in prison for doing nothing wrong. And when he thought things could, couldn't get any worse, they got way worse. And he ends up in prison. It's like, I, I imagine these kinds of thoughts were going through his mind. And if you were there with him and he was asking you, like, what would your response be to some of these questions? Why did God allow this? You know, we have the benefit of knowing the whole story. And, and Joseph didn't have that at this point in the story. But what do you do in the meantime? What do you do when you don't know where it's going? And why would God do something like this? And just to be very clear on the stakes of the question, here's the situation. God is powerful. Christians believe God is all-powerful. God has all the power. And God is very good. God is all-powerful and God is good. And if those two things are true, 
and God could stop pain from happening in our lives or suffering in our lives, why, doesn't, why does he let bad things happen? God has the power to stop them, and God is good. So why, if God doesn't step in and stop suffering or stop difficult situations we're going through, does it mean that one of those things isn't true? Maybe he's not all-powerful or maybe he's not good? This is what people are wondering about sometimes when people go through difficult situations. And Joseph's story will help us think about some of these questions. So I'll start with this. And this, by the way, we need to be very thoughtful and very careful when you're dealing with someone who's really suffering. Like we want to help them. But sometimes when we want to help someone who's really suffering, we offer canned answers rather than just being, being with them and really being thoughtful and prayerful and, and sitting with people in their trouble and listening to what they're going through and how they're feeling. And then to listen to the Holy Spirit and as the Spirit kind of gives us prompts and cues to, to offer help to them, you know, sometimes this is a touchy and tricky situation depending on what you're going through. So what, and I say all that because what I'm about to say could sting a little if said in a, in a not very kind way or not thoughtful way to someone who's really in the middle of suffering, okay? Why does God allow suffering? Why doesn't God intervene when we are hurting? Some of these questions assume that we have some kind of perspective that we don't actually have. We don't know everything God knows, we don't know God's entire plan. We don't know where this is going. We don't know God's intentions. We don't know what God is doing in the world and how he might use this moment of suffering in someone's life to make a difference in the world or to make a difference in someone's life or to change someone's destiny. We don't know what God is up to, and we need to acknowledge that, that we don't have the full picture. So don't assume you know the whole picture when you're going through suffering or when someone else is going through suffering. And I want you to remember the stakes of Joseph's story. In Joseph's story, if these things do not happen the way they happen, if he doesn't end up in Egypt, if he doesn't end up in prison, which actually puts him closer to Pharaoh, if that doesn't happen, everyone dies in his family. Famine is coming. Like a decade down the road, a, a famine is coming that will like impact the ancient world and many thousands of people will die, including his whole family, if he's not there to interpret Pharaoh's dream about the years of plenty that are coming where they can save up the grain for the years of famine. If he's not there, so much loss happens. And if Joseph was sitting there in the prison asking the question, like, why did God let this happen? Well, that's the answer. But Joseph doesn't see that yet. Jo God is going to save many people through Joseph's pain. That's the stakes. That's what's at risk here. And if Joseph knew that, do you think he'd be willing to go through what he went through? If God told him ahead of time, I think he would have. Tim Keller wrote a book, um, a really good book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, which I would recommend to anybody who's going through something very difficult or trying to help someone who's going through something difficult. But he talked about in the book, he says, God gave Joseph exactly what he would have asked for if he knew everything that God did. If Joseph knew the stakes of that in advance, you know, moving forward, and we don't, get to, we don't get to know all the information as we move through things, right? We understand life backwards, but we have to live it forwards. 
If he would have known all that, I think, I'm sure he would have signed up for that. All the pain, all the suffering that he went through, knowing what was at stake, that everybody he loved and all these people that he cared for were going to be rescued by the painful situation that he went through. Um, I watched a video on YouTube of um, sheep being treated for parasites. I don't know if you are familiar with what's involved in this at all, but here's a description of this from kind of a more traditional uh, British um, environment. It says, British shepherds, this is from Tim Keller's book that I was just mentioning, British shepherds often take sheep and rams one by one and throw them into a dipping trough, a huge vat filled with an antiseptic liquid. The shepherd must completely submerge each animal, holding its ears, eyes, and nose under the surface. It is, of course, horribly frightening for the sheep. And if any of the sheep try to climb out of the trough too soon, the sheepdogs bark and snap and force them back in. But as terrifying and as experienced as it is for the sheep, without the periodic treatment, they would become the victims of parasites and disease. It is for their good. Um, I watched a video of this uh, yesterday, and it was a hydraulic machine with this big gate thing that went over the top, and it was a whole pen full of sheep. It was in Australia. And this thing just lowered and dunked all of these sheep. There's like 20 sheep in this pen and just put them entirely under the water or under this fluid that would treat them for the parasites. And they were down there for like five seconds or so. And then it began to raise up and then the sheep were able to get out of it. But it looked terrifying. Like I, I just, I cannot imagine. And I don't know how sheep think, but I imagine for them, it's like this shepherd is killing me right now. This is only for my bad. This is not for my good. But the sheep are being treated for, against these parasites that would be very painful and that would kill them, right, if they didn't have this kind of treatment. And so they're, they, they, without re- realizing what's going on, all day from their limited sheep perspective, right, they just like, this is horrible. Why is the shepherd allowing this to happen? Elizabeth Elliot um, wrote about this. Experience. She saw the sheep in this more traditional environment, not the hydraulic press thing, but saw these sheep being treated for these parasites. And she said, I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to these poor rams. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from the shepherd I trusted. And he didn't give me a hint of explanation. As I watched the struggling sheep, I thought, if only there were some way to explain but such knowledge is too wonderful for them. It is high, they cannot attain unto it. She's quoting Psalm 139, verse 6. If, if only we could understand God's ways, then we'd have some perspective to go through. And, and we can't totally wrap our minds around why God allows certain things. And I don't know if Joseph would have totally grasped it, even in that moment, if he would have been told how this was all playing out and what God had planned for him and for his family But what we do in the meantime with that uncertainty is we trust God's character. Say, God, I know about you that you are good, and I do not understand why I'm going through this. I do not understand the level of pain that I'm experiencing, but I know you're good, and I know that I can trust you with this, and I know that if I can do that, you're going to bring good out of this. And I don't understand how, I can't wrap my mind around how that could happen, but I know that I can trust you. That's where our stance needs to be. That's where our posture needs to be with those kinds of uncertainties. John Newton, who wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace, was writing a letter to a woman who was worried about her sister's illness. And we have this letter um, preserved for us, and it's a little bit archaic language, but I hope you'll follow along with me here. 
He says this in this letter, your sister is much upon my mind. Her illness grieves me. Were it in my power, I would quickly remove it. The Lord can, and I hope will, when he has answered the end for which he sent it. I wish you may be enabled to leave her and yourself and all your concerns in his hands. He has a sovereign right to do with us as he pleases. And if we consider what we are, surely we will confess we have no reason to complain. And to those who seek him, his sovereignty is exercised in a way of grace. All shall work together for good. And then pay careful attention to this next phrase. Everything is needful that he sends, and nothing can be needful that he withholds. You have need of patience, and if you ask, the Lord will give it, but there can be no settled peace till our will is in a measure subdued. Hide yourself under the shadow of his wings. Rely upon his care and power. Look upon him as a physician who has graciously undertaken to heal your soul of the worst of sicknesses, sin. Yield to his prescriptions and fight against every thought that would represent it as desirable to be permitted to choose for yourself. When you cannot see your way, be satisfied that he is your leader. When your spirit is overwhelmed within you, he knows your path. He will not leave you to sink. He's appointed seasons of refreshment and you shall find that he does not forget you. Above all, keep close to the throne of grace. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, we may be sure we shall get none by keeping away from him. That's the end of that portion of the letter. I mentioned this earlier, but there's this split response that people often have when they go through pain. One is to draw near to God and one is to run from God. And, and he says here at the end that if you seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, we may be sure we shall get none by keeping away from him. Because when we're going through painful situations and we, with, we, we step away from God or we say, God, why would you allow this? And I can't trust you and all of this. We, we withhold the help from ourselves that God alone offers. God wants to walk through those things with us. And God's doing it already, but we need to lean into that. We need to receive the help that God offers. So where is God when you're going through painful circumstances? He's right there in the middle of them with you. This was true in Joseph's situation. We're told twice that the Lord was with him. We're told at the beginning of the chapter, and we're told at the end of the chapter that even in that painful situation, God is with him. We also make the mistake sometimes when we go through painful things that we, we cannot picture what life could be like on the other side of this pain, depending on what you're going through. We might think, we, are, we will forever be defined by this. Like my story's over at this point. And it would have been easy for Joseph to just be stuck in that place in his mind in that prison. Like, I can't see my way beyond this. This is where I am from now on. Like, I'm never going to recover from this. But he's in early chapters of this story that God is telling for him. I was going through a line uh, at a fast food restaurant, and there was a lot of cars and I got up to the window, and there's, you have the little small talk with the person who's taking your order or taking your money from you at the window. And the, the young lady who was working behind the counter was frazzled. She was just, oh, I'm kind of overwhelmed with all how busy it is. And in the short little conversation, you know, handing the card back and forth or getting my drink or whatever it was, she says, oh, this is kind of stressing me out. She goes, I have a lot of disorders. That's what she's told me. <laughs> just offered up to a stranger. I have a lot of disorders. And I don't know her whole situation. I don't want to judge that in any way. But I was just thinking about that it seems to me that she was sort of feeling defined by that. I have a lot of disorders. And so that affects the way I think about myself. That, that's my identity, is someone who has a lot of disorders. 
And I feel like with Joseph, that could have been his identity from this time moving forward. I am the person for whom this happened. All these bad things happened. That's who I am. But instead, he, he, he doesn't seem to be defined by this. He's shaped by it. It's a part of his story, but it doesn't become his identity, it seems. He, he leans into his relationship with God. We see that his relationship with God forms a critical part of his life um, from this part, from the painful part of the story moving forward. God is not mentioned in the early days of Joseph, but from the time Joseph ends up in slavery, we see the Lord is with him. And that seems to be such an important part of Joseph, Joseph's life and how God will tell his story moving forward. Things are not falling apart for Joseph, even though he's ended up in prison. They're actually falling into place for him, right? Because him being in this prison is, places him in proximity to these powerful people. This is Pharaoh's prison. This is not the regular prison. This is where people that have lost the favor of Pharaoh ended up. And this is where he ended up because he was important in Potiphar's house. And this plan begins to come together for him. And he will see the benefit of that. He'll, he'll see the reason why he went through those difficult things, which is where the words come from. God meant it for good. We don't always get to see that, by the way. I need to be honest about that. We don't always get to know the reasons why we go through certain things. That's not promised to us that God will reveal the reasons why we went through it. But what we are given is we're given Joseph's story. We're given biblical examples of the way that Jesus wove or the way that God the Father wove this story together. And we have Joseph's story. And that, that will serve, hopefully for us, as a stand-in, you know, until we know exactly how our story plays out. And maybe it's something we don't know until we get to heaven, but in the meantime, we can trust the God who knows the whole story. There's a beloved Whitworth professor who recently retired named Jerry Sitzer. How many of you know Jerry Sitzer or know of him? Okay, Jerry Sitzer is just an awesome, he's a church history professor and beloved person at Whitworth and just in, in Spokane at large. And uh, I've gotten to know him a little bit in recent years. Pam and I have had some great conversations with him. But back in 1991, um, he was driving home with his family. He was a father of four children, married for something like 20 years to his wife, and then he had his mother with him in the car, and they were driving along a pretty isolated road, um, at, and at 85 miles an hour, a head-on collision happened by a drunk driver. So coming in the other lane, he's driving in his minivan with his family, and this just in, impact, devastating impact happens. And over the next hour or so, while they're waiting for help because they're in such an isolated place, his mother passed away, his wife passed away, and his four-year-old daughter passed away. And he's there with his surviving three children, two sons and a daughter, and trying to care for the family members that are dying, and then trying to tend to those who are living. And his son was, was seriously injured in the accident as well, and as Passers-by are trying to help, and, and they're trying to get emergency response there. He's dealing with his life being changed in an instant. He wrote about this in a uh, book that came out in 1996 called A Grace Disguised. And I've been going through the, his book, and he just talks about what life is like from then on, trying to live as a single father and raise his other three children and dealing with all the losses. And tragically, that um, the, the driver of the car was the only survivor in the other vehicle. His pregnant wife passed away, 
and the driver ended up getting acquitted, wasn't even, uh, didn't face any time for ending the lives of the four people that he killed, five including his unborn child. Um, few of us can imagine that kind of grief and that kind of situation. That is a painful um, situation, but he writes beautifully about the way God taught him things about himself and the way the lessons he learned about dealing with pain in his book, A Grace Disguise, which is another book I would recommend um, if you're interested in reading that. But he talks about Joseph's story in that book as being one of the stories from Scripture that encouraged him and that taught him things, that gave him insight about the way that God works and the way that God can even bring good out of bad. And he says this about Joseph's story. Within the limits of his lifetime, Joseph understands enough to say to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Joseph acknowledges that great evil was done against him, but he also believes in the face of that evil that God's grace has triumphed over it. He recognizes in the unfolding of his life that God is good in ways that he could not see earlier. The Joseph story helps us to see that our own tragedies can be a very bad chapter in a very good book. The terror of randomness is enveloped by the mysterious purposes of God. In the end, life turns out to be good, although the journey to get there may be circuitous and difficult. I've often imagined my own story fitting into some greater scheme, the half of which I may never fathom. I simply do not see the bigger picture, but I choose to believe that there is a bigger picture and that my loss is a part of some wonderful story authored by God himself. Sometimes I wonder about my own experience of loss, how it will someday serve a greater purpose that I do not yet see or understand. My story may help to redeem a bad past or it may bring about a better future. Perhaps my own family heritage has produced generations of absent and selfish fathers and I've been given a chance to reverse that pattern. Perhaps people suffering catastrophic loss will someday look to our family for hope and inspiration. I do not know, yet I choose to believe that God is working towards some ultimate purpose, even using my loss to that end. When we're going through painful situations and, and uh, trouble, we need to remember that God is with us even in our sufferings. God is with Joseph. We're told that twice during this story. And we're told that, that God cares, like God knows. God wants to, to, us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And God promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And sometimes that's what we need to know or need to be reminded of more than anything is that God is with us in our suffering. God is with us in our trouble. How do we know that God would go to any lengths to be with us in our trouble? Because he did when he came down to this earth. When God came down, he became God with us. We're told that Joseph had God with him. We're about to celebrate in just a few weeks at Christmas time, God with us. The incarnation, Christ's birth into this world and then his death on the cross tells us so much about what, how God feels about our suffering that God would come down, that God would live in this world with us, that he would suffer the unfair treatment and the brutality of humanity and then use even that, even this unfair act to save us and to bring us salvation. We're going to celebrate and remember that in a few moments with the Lord's Supper. But I want to read a few words from a book by Peter Kreft as we're closing out these 
this time and moving in towards this time of worship and communion and the sun is just shining into this room seems symbolic. Peter Crave says this about God and his identification with our suffering and the fact that he is with us. Um, he says this, In coming into our world, he came also into our suffering. He sits behind, beside us in the stalled car in the snowbank. Sometimes he starts the car for us, but even when he doesn't, he's there. And that's the only thing that matters. Who cares about cars and success and miracles and long life when you have God sitting beside you? He sits beside us in the lowest places of our life like water. Are we broken? He is broken with us. Are we rejected? Do people despise us not for our evil but for our good or attempted good? He was despised and rejected of men. Do we weep? Is grief our familiar spirit, our horrifyingly familiar ghost? Do we ever say, oh no, not again, I can't take anymore? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do people misunderstand us, turn away from us? They hid their faces from him as from an outcast, a leper. Is our love betrayed? Are our tenderest relationships broken? He too loved and was betrayed by the ones he loved. He came into his own and his own received him not. Listen, God is with us. Whatever you are going through, God is with you in the middle of that. And, and we, we can invite him to be more a part of our life and just to acknowledge him. And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you um, right now to invite him to help you, to invite him to be a part of whatever you may be going through. And let's, let's pray together and prepare our hearts for this time of communion. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the story of Joseph, and we thank you for what we can learn, the insights that we can gather from this story. And Lord, I've been talking about how you can be with us in the middle of our suffering um, and redeem and bring good out of bad. But Lord, we, we have to acknowledge that maybe not everybody in this room or everybody watching this online are, are in that place where they've received you as their Savior. So they are kind of going through this life in an isolated way without the help that you're there to offer. And Lord, I pray that right now, Lord, if there's anyone in that situation, that they would invite you to be a part of their life. That they would say something like, I am done going through this on my own. I need you. And that, Lord, your, your, your son's death on the cross was provided as a gift for us. That if we look to you and receive the salvation you offer, you give us new life. You give us your spirit. You promise to never leave us nor forsake us. And you can be our, the God of all comfort and the one that walks through trouble with us. And so, Lord, if there's anybody here who has yet to receive that incredible gift of a God who will walk through the trouble with them, I pray that right now you'd invite them into your family, that they say yes to you. Say, I believe in you, I trust you, I receive your forgiveness that you offer, and I want to walk with you. And then, Lord, I, I think of anybody in this room who, who knows you already, but is just going through trouble right now. There's the weight and the pain of difficulties. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to, even though we don't know exactly how this will play out, whatever the this may be in the case of the different people in this room, that we can trust your character. We can trust your intentions. We can entrust your plan and your goodness. And Lord, that what we need even more than, even more than answers, answers would be amazing, but what we need right now is your presence and to trust your character and your goodness. And so Lord, I pray that you would just apply in the very specific way that everybody who fits that description, every way that they need right now.
Lord, be with them. Comfort them. Encourage them. Lift them up. Let them know that you are good and that this is a difficult chapter and a good story that you're telling. But Lord, we love you and we thank you for these uh, words of truth from Joseph's story and all the lessons that we can learn that even when things are meant for evil, God meant it for good. And so we trust you. We express our trust in you, Lord. And this time of communion is such an important reminder of how you've brought good out of bad. This injustice against your son on the cross, Lord, resulted in salvation for millions and millions of people. And so, Lord, we celebrate that and we remember that this morning. We declare our belief in that. And I pray that you'd help us as we do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.